We are going to be covering the book of Ruth and the first 24 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. And, you know, as I was reading through it and, and going through this week and going, okay, Lord, this is like seriously crazy because uh, there's a lot going on here. And how do you want us to bring it all together? And yesterday I was like, Lord, we really need to bring this all together. And I see the big picture, but what's, what's our unifying thing here? What's the theme? And then I started looking at what was said about Ruth and what Hannah said in her prayer and what was said about Samuel and what was said about David. And I'm like, oh, got it. Okay. So we're going to look at how God uses people. And um, what we're looking at is really one story, of course, but watching God orchestrate lives over a few generations to come together and culminate in the, the kingship of David, okay? So the way this all works out is pretty cool. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the Word and uh, be blessed. So Heavenly Father, today we get to look at a transition, a transition from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. And Lord, the fact of the matter is that we see placed here, we've already seen in judges, we're gonna see now in the shift to the kings. If you're not at the center, if you are not the king, then things don't go well. You love your people, you care about us, you know what's best for us, you know what will harm us. And in your love, you give us counsel and guidance and strength in your spirit so that we may walk in your ways and enjoy the blessings and the life that you have for us. And so as we go into Ruth and 1 Samuel, open up our eyes more to the truth of the need for you to be the king of our lives so that we can really enjoy the life that you have for us, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. When we go through this, I want you to keep some things in mind. When we look at the people in Ruth and in 1 Samuel, they are ordinary people living ordinary lives, going through ordinary things with an extraordinary God doing extraordinary things for an extraordinary plan and purpose, okay? And we can so easily get bogged down in the mundane things of life. But like it says in the book of, you know, Ephesians, I'm not Ephesians, Romans, Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we see this here. He uses barrenness, famine, death, sorrow, grief, failure, all manner of things in people's lives that are just like us, just, you know, especially when you look at Ruth 
You know, just her and Naomi just trying to scratch out a living and get by from day to day. And God's using all of it to bring about his plans and purposes. And he's weaving lives together. And these people don't even know it. And it's an exciting story. All right. So let's open up our Bibles. And we're going to begin in Ruth chapter 1. And you're probably familiar with the story. Ruth and her husband and their two boys. Because there's a famine in Israel, they go to Moab. Now understand, when we're looking at the, the beginning of, well, really up till we get to Saul, Ruth and 1 Samuel, this is all happening in the time of the judges. Samuel is the last judge of Israel, okay? So this is in a very dark time. There is famine in the land. God's dealing with the sin of the people. And people have said that the book of Ruth is actually a pearl against a dark black backdrop. And it just stands out. And you look at, think of everything that we've been seeing in the book of Judges and how up and down and crazy, and especially when we see that epilogue at the end of the book of Judges, just even gross, such sin and such awful stuff. You have... Boaz, you have Naomi, you have Ruth, you have Hannah, you have Elkanah, you have Samuel, you know, and you see God working in the lives of individuals to do fantastic things and including simple people to do great things for him. And that speaks to us because you look at this, they're just like you and me. And God never changes. He's just the way he is. And so that means we're in good company and we have a great Lord. And that's a great place to be. So in the book of Ruth, Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and the boys and they go to Moab to try to find food and all because of the famine that's in Israel. The famine that's in Israel is because of God's punishment for what they're doing. So the long and the short of it is they're there and Elimelech dies. The two boys marry two Moabite women, which they should not have done, but they did. The Moabites resisted Israel when they were wandering in the desert. They tried to take them down. They tried to take them out and God judged them. And the Israelites were not supposed to intermarry with the Gentiles, because the Gentiles would pull them down. And uh, they ended up marrying Ruth and Orpah, okay? Well, the two sons of Naomi and Elimelech died, leaving Orpah and Naomi and Ruth widows. And when we pick it up in chapter 1, verse 15, things are so bad Naomi says it's time to go back to Israel because she heard that in Bethlehem there was bread again. God was moving and they could, she could you know, go back to her, her kin and, and not be alone anymore. And so she's telling the gals, you need to go back to your families. And listen to what she says in chapter 1, verse 15. She says to Ruth, see your sister-in-law, that's Orpah, has gone back to her people and to her gods. 
Keep that in mind. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And get this, this is big, okay? Because she is a Moabitess. She is not wanted by Israelites. She is an outcast. She is, she's not to be, you know, interacted with at all as a Moabitess. And she says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. This woman is sold out to her mother-in-law, to Naomi. She loves her. And such is her love for her. And there's a commitment to the Lord. The word Yahweh is in this short little book 17 times. The Lord is the focal point of this book. And she is willing to leave her family, her gods, everything that's familiar to go with Naomi to a land that does not want her, to a place she's never been before, leaving everything she's ever known behind and to serve a God that she has seen Naomi serve. And I find it interesting that when you look at Naomi and Elimelech's life, it was not a great life. It wasn't the kind of life where you go, man, I want to follow God because of what I see going on in your life. Everybody's dying around you. It's crazy and you've lost everything. But there was something about Naomi's relationship with God where Ruth goes, your God will be my God. And the way that Boaz speaks to her regarding that is important. So they go back to Israel. They go to Bethlehem. What do you do? She has no family. Naomi has no family, no close relatives. They need food. And so Ruth goes out to the fields to glean like the poor people. She's begging. She's going out and she's just picking the grain out of this thing, out of, out of the fields. And I love the way this works. Now look at this, chapter two, verse three. So she set out and went and gleaned in a field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And she happened. When God is orchestrating our lives, there is no and you happened. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his paths. Even if he falls down, he will not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds him with his righteous hand. That's what the scriptures say. God ordains our steps when we are yielded to him. So here she is, she's just going out to find grain so they've got food for the evening. Where does she end up? Boaz's place. And Boaz sees her and it's like, who is this person? Verse five, then Boaz said to, this, to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? 
And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She is working hard. Understand, this is the time of Pentecost, the barley harvest, okay? So big, big thing, a time of celebration, a lot going on. And she comes and begs to be able to glean behind the reapers. So Boaz says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, listen to this, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is going to come back to us in just a moment. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She came into Israel with Naomi seeking the covering of the Lord of Israel. And the fame of her loyalty and love and commitment to Naomi, everybody knew. Here's this person that was an outsider that everybody would reject. But the people of Bethlehem love this gal because of her heart. And she is sold out to her mother-in-law. She is sold out to the Lord and she's seeking refuge from the Lord. So she gleans in the field and all, and she gets a lot of food, okay? Because Boaz is saying, hey, I want you to throw some more food down there. So she's just got a lot. So by the time she gets home, you know, Naomi's like, where'd you get this? You know, it's like, well, I went to this guy's place. It's, his name's Boaz. And he is a relative, a close relative, okay? And if you remember the book of Job, when we first started our journey in the Bible, Job said of God, I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth. And when he said Redeemer, it's the same word that's used for Boaz. It's the word Goel, the kinsman Redeemer, the blood relative Redeemer. So Job is saying of God, I know my Goel, my blood relative lives, speaking of God, and in the end he will stand on the earth. And though my flesh be destroyed, with my eyes I will see God. And that was speaking of when you go down the road to Jesus, because he became our kinsman redeemer. He was fully man, fully God. Hebrews talks about how he became like us so that he could be a priest and a sacrifice for us. Only a blood relative could redeem us. 
That's who Jesus is. That's who Boaz was. And so Naomi says to Ruth, okay, look, he can redeem the property of my husband, your, your, your husband, and he can take care of us because they're widows. They have nothing. They have no rights, no property, nothing. And Naomi says, go and tell him who he is and leave it in the Lord's hands, okay? And so chapter three, verse six, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and remember, this is Pentecost, okay? This is a really exciting time. This is the whole community was just rejoicing, the harvest and all that. So he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over to behold a woman uh, lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, when she went in, in the nighttime like this, she was giving Boaz the opportunity to reject what was his responsibility. Because she respected him, she was honoring him, and he could have said, and nobody would have known, he could have said, thanks, but no thanks. And she could have gone off, and that would be the end of it. But she put herself at his feet, and she said, this is who you are. And she said, cover me with your wings. It's the exact same term that was used. She sought the covering of the wings of God. She was submitting herself as she submitted herself to Yahweh and entrusted her care to him, seeking him to overshadow her with his wings like a protective mother bird. She's asking the same thing of Boaz. She puts herself at his feet, that place of humility and servitude, and says, will you be my covering? And you know the story. He said, well, there's one closer than me. But if he says no, you got it. I'll deal with it in the morning. You got to love the guy. You know, his heart. And so he goes and he talks to the, the other relative and he brings them before the elders and says, okay, hey, look, Naomi is our relative. You're the closest relative. Will you redeem the property as an inheritance for her and for her, her family? And he goes, yeah, I'll do that. And he says, now, if you take the property, you also have to take Ruth and you have to raise up an heir to take the property and continue the line of Naomi and Elimelech. I can't do that. Nope, nah, it's just not gonna sit well. And Boaz's like, okay, so they did their thing, you know, before the elders. And it says that Boaz purchased 
Ruth as his wife. He redeemed her. He paid the bride price. Jesus did that with us. We are his betrothed. And the bride price that he paid for you and for me was his blood on the cross. We are redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And we are his bride and his precious possession. And that is so awesome. And so here, she humbles herself. She's seeking the Lord. The Lord moves and all she's doing is out there just trying to find food for the day. And God orchestrates the events to where she meets the kinsman redeemer who would make her his own and carry on the line literally of her former husband because little Obed that's born to them takes on the role of, takes her husband's place as the heir of the property. And so you go to verse 13 of chapter four. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. Now get this. And she bore a son. She was married to Naomi's son for 10 days, 10, 10 days, 10 years, no children. Now she's married to Boaz. The Lord moves upon her and she bears children. This is the hand of God being shown. And it says, then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So who's the redeemer of Naomi? Boaz? No, he's Ruth's redeemer. Obed, Naomi's grandson, he is her redeemer. He will care for her. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him the name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So here's this woman who seeks the covering of the Lord and submits herself to the Lord, going to a land she did not know. And she becomes the great grandmother of King David. Who knew? God did. Now, there's something else going on at this time. There's another couple. They're in Israel. And the name of the man is Elkanah. He has two wives, Penina. She's, she's a piece of work. And then he got Hannah. And Hannah's something. Elkanah loves Hannah. They can't have kids. Penina's always rubbing it in Hannah's face. And Hannah, as Ruth did, is looking to the Lord for help. Now understand, Ruth is Obed's mom. Hannah is Samuel's mom. 
this, these two events are happening pretty much at the same time. And so Obed is born, then Jesse, then David. Samuel is born to Hannah and Elkanah. And Samuel carries as the judge and the prophet all the way through to where he anoints as king Ruth's grandson, David. Two different life stories happening in two different places, same God, people who are just common, and the Lord is fusing their stories together and they don't even know. And so she goes and she prays. First Samuel chapter one, they go to Shiloh, they're worshiping the Lord. And it says in verse uh, nine, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but I but will give to your servant. I think she's driving the point home. She loves the Lord and she serves the Lord. That's her heart. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Hmm. He'll be a Nazarite. Long-haired Samuel. I don't think I've ever seen a picture in Bible, little kids' Bibles and stuff of him having long hair, but he was a Nazarite. He will be given all the days of his life to the Lord. Now, there's something very important here because she's making this vow to the Lord. And God answers Hannah's prayer and she conceives Samuel. Elkanah, and this guy does not get the credit he deserves. But if you, if you were reading through the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 30, there's the rules for vows, for when a man or a woman makes a vow to the Lord. And what the Lord says is, if a woman makes a vow and she's unmarried, if her father hears of it and says no and overrides and says, that's not going to happen. The Lord honors the position of the father over the lady and the Lord will respect his position and free her of that vow. God honors the authority of the family structure that he created. And if she is married and her husband hears of the vow, and he chooses to void that vow and says, no, I don't agree with that. Then the Lord will honor his position as the authority of the home. And she is released from the vow. That's Numbers chapter 30. Elkanah could have said, Hannah, come on. We have waited for a child forever. And you want to just give him to the Lord? Whoa. And Elkin is like, right on, girl. Go for it. He endorsed the vow. He supported his wife 
And he gave that, as far as he knew, that was going to be the only son, the only child. And he gave him back to the Lord with, with Hannah. And so after, after Samuel is weaned, she and Elkanah bring him back to the temple, to the tabernacle, to Eli, where this little guy starts serving the Lord. Okay? And I think this is so cool. Any little kid who has a heart for the Lord, I think we should let them serve in the house of the Lord. If they want to greet at the door or they want to pray with somebody or whatever, God uses little people too. He uses all sorts of folks. And we tend to compartmentalize the kind of people or the age that God can use God uses all sorts of folks. And little Samuel was just a kid, but God was using him and moving through his life. It doesn't matter our age, our stature, who we are, where we've come from. It's all irrelevant. If we are seeking the Lord and serving the Lord, the Lord will bless us and use us. If you go down in chapter 2, this is Hannah's prayer. And she says in verse 9, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. And sometimes I wonder if she was thinking of Penina. But anyway, because Penina was not nice. But anyway, it says, For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. But there's no king yet. But Samuel will anoint that king. Actually, two of them. And exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the first time the word anointed, where we get Messiah, is used pertaining to a person ultimately pointing to the King Messiah, Jesus, who is a descendant of David, okay? But what sticks out here to me is at the end of verse 9, for not by might shall a man prevail. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Zerubbabel is going back to Israel. They're going to rebuild the temple. They've come out of the Babylonian captivity. And he's looking at this thing going, I can't do this. And the prophet Zechariah comes to him and says, listen, this is what the Lord says to you. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Hannah's saying this right here. It's not by might. It's by the Lord. Ruth understood it wasn't by her abilities. She sought the covering of the Lord. When we look at Samuel, he was a Nazarite dedicated to the Lord, and he sought the Lord. When you look at Saul, he sought the Lord initially, got too big for his britches, and things went sideways. And then David sought the Lord and loved the Lord. And I think this is critical for us to keep in mind as we go through this, and we look at this. It doesn't matter what your abilities are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you know. 
It doesn't matter what you don't know. The person who is yielded to the Lord and loves the Lord, God uses that person. You know, we mentioned it last week when God was speaking to Asa, King Asa, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro. God's looking for people to whom he can show himself strong, whose hearts are loyal to him. Ruth was loyal to the Lord. He showed himself strong. Elkanah and Hannah were loyal to the Lord. He showed himself strong. Samuel, Saul for a season, David, and the list goes on. A person who following the Lord, and not even perfectly because David botched it bad. Okay, we know that. Even in our imperfections, God's still able to work. It's not by your might. No matter what sphere of life it is, be it your family, be it the workplace, be your relationship with the Lord, be it serving in ministry somewhere, whatever it may be, it's not to be in your strength. It's to be in His. When we try to do it in our own strength, one pastor said, if we try to attain or if we strive to attain, we strive to maintain. If we're doing it in our strength, it's just an ongoing struggle to keep it moving forward. It's a lot easier just to let the Lord do his work, right? And we just go, aye, aye, Captain. So Samuel was born. God is moving. And then God deals with Eli. Eli was a judge. He was a priest. His sons were a mess. They were, they were just a mess, okay? And God judged them for their sin. They were taking advantage of the women who were uh, serving the Lord at the tabernacle. And Eli wasn't doing anything about it. And in chapter 3, God sends a prophet and says to Eli, Look, God's taking the priesthood away from your line. It's over for you. And he'll raise up another priest who will honor him and follow him. In verse 35, God says through the prophet, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. This is another part of God's weaving. Because down the road, Zadok would be anointed as king under David. Okay? Zadok was from the Aaron's line, but he was under Eleazar. Eli was from the other son, Ithamar. So the line of Ithamar is shut down. But through Eleazar, through Zadok, the priesthood continues. And so as Eli's line is shut down, God is going to raise up the other line to come alongside David and serve and minister and help him as a king. Okay? So you have Samuel, Zadok, and David all working together. From that point on, it says in verse 19, 
Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. All Israel from the time of Dan to, Be from Dan to Beersheba, basically all the way from the north to the south, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God was not speaking much during that time, the time of the judges. A lot of sin, a lot of garbage, and God was pretty quiet. But through Samuel, he began to speak again. And it says, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. One of the key ways that the Lord reveals himself to you and me is here. The word of God. What's he like? The written word of God. What's he like? The logos, the word of God, Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. You know, Philip was like, I think it was Philip. You know, Lord, show us the father and that would be enough. It's like, how long have I been with you, Philip? If you've seen me, you're looking at him, man. Oh, you know, okay. We get to know Yahweh by the word of God and by the son of God. And we grow in our relationship with him through both those words. And so what goes on from there is God's going to deal with Eli. The Philistines uh, attack Israel and Israel goes, hey, you know what? We got an idea. If we just get the, the ark and bring it into battle, then God will defeat the enemy for us. So they get the ark and what happens? The Philistines capture the ark. They were thinking that they could just pull God out of a hat whenever they want and God will take care of things. No. And so the ark is with the Philistines for quite some time and God does some really bad things to the Philistines. He brings rats in and scholars believe that hemorrhoids came along with it. And so as people were getting uncomfortable, they were getting the ark out and sending it to another Philistine city to the point where the Philistine cities were going, we do not want that ark. And so they put it on a cart and they had two cows who had just had young, who had never pulled a cart, put the ark on it and said, okay, let's see what happens. If God is doing this to us, then those cows are not gonna try to get back to their, their young they're actually going to work in tandem and they're going to take this thing back to Israel. But if it's not God doing this, then they're going to do what they would normally do as cows and go back to their young. And it's just going to be a mess because they don't know how to pull a, a cart. And of course, off they go straight on to Israel. No problem. And they're like, yeah, that was God that was punishing us. And so the heart comes back into Israel and they repent. Samuel says, okay, gang, it's time for you to get right with the Lord again. And in chapter seven, verse 15, it says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel and he built there an altar to the Lord. Now, chapter eight, and remember, the whole thing is holding to the Lord, seeking the Lord, being strong in the Lord. When Samuel became old, 
He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain and took bribes and perverted justice. You can walk with the Lord, but each person, even your kids, grandkids, have to make their own choice. They were not walking with the Lord. And the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Thank you. So you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you. For they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. I love the way that God deals with this. Anytime there's going to be judgment, anytime there's going to be repercussions, anytime that there's a potential to sin, God always gives a warning. Always, from the garden to here to now. So in verse 10, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. And appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your land and vineyards and olives orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of the grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take from your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. God's making it really clear. And do you know the difference between the human king and God the king? Six times God tells them, the king will take from you. He's going to take and take and take and take for his purposes, his will, his kingdom. Notice with God, he was always giving. He was always providing. Very different. And he's warning them. And then in verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that the king will judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. What kind of king do you want that can do what God can do? When God fights, nobody wins. 
but him. But they want a king like the, the nations. They want a man, not God. And there was a man of Benjamin, chapter 9, verse 1, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Behorah, son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. You want a king, God's like, okay, I'm going to give you the poster child of kingship. He's going to look it. He's taller than everybody. You know who the king is because of the stature and his handsomeness. And he's just, you know, it's kind of like when he smiles, you know, in those cartoons and stuff where the teeth have that little starry gleam, you know, on it. That was, that was Saul. Man, he, he, he would impress, you know, when you go out to battle. That's what they wanted. But he was also humble at the beginning. When Samuel comes to him, in verse 20 of chapter 9, as your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found, and for whom all that is desirable in Israel, is it not for you and for your father's house? He's basically saying, don't worry about the donkeys that you're trying to find. They're at home and you're more important. Saul answered, am I not a Benjamite? from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Why are you saying I'm the choice one? I don't get it. He didn't see himself as anything particularly special. And Samuel says, I want you to go to this particular place. And as you go, you're going to come to the prophets and the Lord's going to move upon you. Verse six, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. So Samuel, I mean, Saul had everything going for him. God came upon him. The Holy Spirit rushed upon him. He had the backing of the Lord. The Lord changed his heart. The Lord gave him everything he needed to be a successful king. Everything was there. And so now, going on into verse 17, Samuel proclaims him to be the king. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. And now remember, Saul is here, okay, but he disappears, and this is, I think, why. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. 
Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matarites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired of the, again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself amongst the luggage. So where's Saul? He's hiding. He's scared. And, you know, I used to think it was just because he was humble. But look at the context of what God has just said through Samuel. Here's Saul. He's going to be anointed king. And God says through Samuel, you rejected me as your king. You have disassociated yourself from me and you want a man as your king. So, okay, I'm going to give you a king. And I wonder if Saul was like, they're replacing God with me. I'm not very comfortable with that. And so he goes off to the luggage and he hides. He's scared. And I think rightly so. And that was his heart. He had a heart that was humble and had a respect and a fear for God. And you see the humility in verse 25. It says, And Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. He even gave him a team touched by the hand of God, ready to serve. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Saul could have said, you respect me. He was like, you know what? Don't sweat it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Later on, the people after they anoint him king say, we're those worthless men that didn't want to honor Saul. And Saul said, you know what? Look, this, let's just not go there. Let it, let it be. Just let it pass. And he was not about himself. He was about God. He was about the things of God. And so some time passes on. Samuel gives his farewell address in chapter 12. And it's not that Samuel's dying or leaving. It's just now we've made the shift with the anointing of Saul. We're no longer under the judges. We're under the kings. Okay. So now Samuel has pretty much done his job as the judge. He's out of work now. He's a prophet. And he does that very well. And so God uses Saul. But a time comes where in verse 13, chapter 13, I'm sorry, the Philistines rise up and Samuel says, look, I want you to wait seven days. I'm going to meet you. And we're going to seek the Lord. And then you can go out and fight. Well, Verse eight, he waited seven days, the, appointed, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me 
and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered in Mishmash. I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord. Your God with which he has commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over the people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Wow. So over time, there's been this shift where Saul thinks he has to keep everything under control. And it's about him. And as the people are fleeing him, he's not looking to the Lord. He's like, how can I keep this thing together? Remember, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And it says of David that he's a man after God's own heart. And people will say he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a mess. Yeah, he was. He messed up bad. You know what? Me too. I wish I could say I've served God perfectly. Had it down, never screwed up. But you know what? That's just not the case. We fail. God uses fallible people. Doesn't excuse things, and we'll see that with David. God deals with him severely for his sin. But I think this is where it comes down to when you look through the Psalms as you read these passages here in Kings and Chronicles and, and uh, Samuel, David knew who the king of Israel was and it wasn't him. He is constantly referring to God as the king of Israel. And he saw himself, yes, as king, but as a steward of God's people. He was a shepherd of God's flock. That was his heart. That was the difference between him and Saul. Saul saw himself as king. David saw God as king. David looked to the Lord. Hannah looked to the Lord. Ruth looked to the Lord. Samuel looked to the Lord. And therein lies the success. That's where the strength and the blessing lies. And that was David's heart. And so... Saul just starts spiraling down. Chapter 14, he's not doing anything to the Philistines, but check this out. This is a little side note. Here's Jonathan and his armor bearer, and nothing's going on. And so Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, that it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Saul was locked up wasn't leading the army against the enemies of God. And so here's Jonathan and his armor is like, hey, you know what? God can do anything. He doesn't need an army. He can do the two of us. Let's go. And it's like, okay, when we get up on the, on the ridge, if they say, hey, you wait right there and we're going to come teach you a lesson, then we know that we, we need to get out of there. But if they say, hey, you come up here and we'll show you a thing or two, then we know God wants us to go up. And the two of those guys with the Lord, okay, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, 
says the Lord. The two of these guys go in and start tearing it up. And there's a total chaos going on in the Philistine camp. And Saul hears about it and he's wondering what's going on. So what does Saul do? He's like, get the priest. Let's figure out what's going on here. Let's have a, let's have a meeting here and see what's happening. So Saul is talking while Jonathan is acting. And so often people are all about, well, let's see what God wants to do and let's pray about what God wants to do. And that's not a bad thing. But if God's already moving, you're already missing the bus. If we have a heart to let the Lord move through our lives and he says, go, you know, that's the only thing we need is just a command from the Lord. And we roll and God meets us. And so Saul trying to keep things under control, he says, all right, we're going into battle. Nobody gets to eat anything until after this battle is done. So the people are getting weary and all of that. And you may remember that Jonathan, he's weary. He's been fighting, he and his armor bearer, and he sees some honey, he gets some. And it says his eyes were brightened and all of that. It's like, oh, okay, you know, I'm back in the fight. And then it was told to Saul, hey, you know what? Somebody disobeyed your kingly order to not eat. Well, who? Even if it's my son, Jonathan, he's a dead man. Well, it happens to be your son, Jonathan. And in his pride and arrogance and all, he says, then Jonathan will surely die. And listen to what the people say. Verse 44 of chapter 14. And Saul said, God do to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Man, that guy's hard. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not, uh, shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. Listen, for he has worked with God this day. He has worked with God this day. One person sold out to the Lord can do incredible things. God seeks to show himself strong. And so things just keep going down. Saul ends up having the opportunity to, um, having the commandment to kill and wipe out the Amalekites. He disobeys the Lord. He keeps King Agag. He keeps the best. And then when Saul calls, or Samuel calls him on the carpet and says, what have you done? Same song, second verse. What have you done? Oh, well, you know, we kept the best animals and everything for sacrifice and all, and we, we just want to honor the Lord. And that's what Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. God doesn't want the sacrifice. He wants us to obey. And that's when God tore the kingdom out of Saul's hand. And then he sends Samuel to anoint David. And if you go on, we can pick it up. He goes and he anoints David. This is chapter 16. And he's looking at the oldest brother of David and says, ah, this is the guy. He looks the part. And God says to him, but the Lord says to Samuel, verse 7, do not look on his appearance or at the height of his stature. That was a Saul. Because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as a man sees, but man looks on the uh, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David had the heart; he had a heart for the Lord, and so David ends up being anointed by King uh, by Samuel. He enters into the service of King Saul. He takes out Goliath again, 
pushing the fact that it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so you have this thing where from Ruth and Boaz all the way through to David, this consistency of people trusting the Lord and people not trusting the Lord, people obeying and not obeying. And the success is always there. And the glory and the victory is in the obedience to the things of God. And so you and I are here today, we're just regular folk. I wonder what God is doing that we have no idea that's coming down the road. We may not see it, okay? Ruth never saw her great, great, great grandson, David. But she was a part of it. As a matter of fact, she never saw her great, 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 grandson, Jesus, Yeshua, the Savior of the world. What does God want to do in our lives? Not just during our lifetime, but further on down the road in things that we don't even know. Through our children, through people we touch and minister to, through lives that God touches through us and how he moves out through that. These chapters that we've looked at is one God working wonderfully through many people yielded to him to do an incredible thing. And he works through his church, his people, you and me, despite all our failures and fallibilities and everything. All he's just looking for is somebody sold out to him. Somebody who is loyal to him. He'll take care of the rest.